Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Tuesday the 16th of June and today we're going to brief you on buying a house. Will COVID produce the opportunity of a generation for young people desperate to crack the housing market and will Annika Smethurst capitalise? That is the question. Hell yes, I will, Tom. I'm going to live in a mansion after this, hopefully. <laughs> She's circling the market, ready to strike. <laughs> All right, let's get into the big stories of the day. A Victorian Labor branch stacking scandal is now echoing through the halls of federal parliament. How far does the rot go in the Labor Party? Well, the fact is that when you see a problem, you've got to fix the problem. The 60 Minutes revelations about the corruption in the Victorian Labor Party branch have forced the federal leader, Anthony Albanese, to answer some pretty tough questions on the matter. Events like this do undermine faith in politics, which is why it's important that it be dealt with. So the national executive, which is Labor's governing body, is actually expected now to step in and dissolve the Victorian branch so it can order party memberships in Victoria. This comes after Victorian Small Business Minister Adam Somurek was sacked yesterday and then a second minister, Assistant Treasurer Robin Scott, stepped down last night. What Mr Somurek has done, so his conduct and his comments, are completely deplorable, they are shameful and it is on that basis that there is no place in my government for him. So this has been a shocking scandal for the Labor Party, Annika. Can you go back a little bit and explain what branch stacking actually is? Sure. So people might hear this term and not actually understand what it means. But uh, And to put it in context, Adam Somirak denies branch stacking. But in general, branch stacking is either finding um, perhaps people that have died, perhaps people that don't exist, or people that don't know they're a member of a certain party, Labor Party, Liberal Party. It goes on in both parties. And yet they get signed up. So they get signed up so they can be put in certain electorates and help get a local person elected, and then they, that person feels safe in that area. So it, it's really bad. It's not a really good thing you should be doing in politics. It will be referred to the police. It's a serious you know, breach of not only the party code, but potentially the law, and can get you in a lot of trouble. So this is about people wielding power in a political party by rigging the numbers in ballots in, in local branches to control which candidates get selected? Yeah, so if, Tom, you're the member for your local electorate, you want to make sure you stay there. So whenever there's a vote, they all vote for you. Um, you can do that by you know, getting your family and friends to sign up or perhaps by putting some fake names in there. And look, that is the sort of allegations we're talking about here. But it has actually started to impact the federal party, which is why Anthony Albany was asked about it last night. Yeah, so why has it moved from being a Victorian state Labor issue to a federal Labor issue? Look, this was on 60 Minutes on Sunday night and my text was flying hot with why is this happening in a federal MP's office? So from the footage, you could see a screensaver uh, and also it was pointed out that the type of phone they were using was also a federal MP's phone. Now, these are things only insiders might pick up on. There was um, an electorate on the wall, the electorate of Holt, which is held by um, Anthony Byrne, who's a Labor MP. So the allegation is being made that some of these conversations were, of course, happening in that office. And you think, well, one, why was this filming happening in that office? You know, MPs have pretty serious conversations in their office. If it was, in fact, Anthony Byrne's office, he's on a really high-level intelligence committee. Uh, a lot of that information is kept secret from people. So it's a real concern about why this would actually be happening and whether the MP knew. 
Yeah, and this question actually came up in the Lee Sales 7.30 ABC interview last night. Let's have a listen to that. In some of the footage, you can see a computer with an Australian Parliament House screensaver, which means it was filmed in the office of a federal Labor MP. Whose office was it? Oh, look, I, I'm not aware of all the details of, of that. Uh, that's a matter for for Channel 9 and 60 Minutes. But what why I'm aren't you curious about. about that as the leader of the Federal Labor Party if some of this was shot in a federal MP's office? And from there, Anthony Albanese essentially couldn't answer her follow-up questions. That seems like a, a question that won't go away until there is a proper answer. And he might say that's not a matter for him, but I would be surprised if he hadn't made inquiries along those <laughs> lines. No MP would want to know that there was secret cameras in their office. And I think, Tom, if uh, everybody had cameras in their office, we'd be a little bit concerned about what we might have said on the phone in the past, which has come back to bite Adam Somirak, of course. As the Black Lives Matter movement grips the world, the debate is now turning to sport. We've seen athletes taking a stand online and here in the AFL and NRL taking a knee on the field in solidarity with the movement. It's the lack of cultural competence in the hierarchy in a number of different sporting codes that is not bringing about the change as quickly as people would like. That's the A-League club Adelaide United's director of football, Bruce Jutte. And he actually took things further, saying the Adam Goods situation was avoidable. I tell you now, if there was an Indigenous person on the AFL Commission or AFL CEO during the time where Adam Goods was getting racially vilified, it would have had a different reaction. The guy might still be in actively involved in the sport. Massive call there on uh, the Adam Goods situation. But look, there's been a lot of criticism of some sports players about whether they should be getting involved in politics. I was particularly drawn to Carlton co-captain Sam Doherty, who was asked why they took a knee the other night and gave a strong defence of one of his teammates, Eddie Betts. To see him vilified like that, it, it does hurt us. And anyone that's asking a question about why we're taking a knee pre-game or why we're trying to make a difference, this is the exact reason why. I can't understand what that does to Eddie, and I never will. As an industry and as a footy club, we've got to stand behind our Indigenous players and, and make a stand. Isn't it interesting to see that in the NFL in the US, Colin Kaepernick did this a few years ago, and it basically cost him his career. And now we've got players all around the world, including here in Australia, doing it. Yeah, and it doesn't mean they're getting a free pass there. You know, there's been a lot of criticism about saying leave politics and sports separately, right. but we've heard so many times that that can't be the case. That, And right there, Doherty's saying that, you know, it's hit a point where they've got to step in. And we've heard a lot about how much our unis are struggling during COVID-19, and that's because the international student numbers have basically dropped off a cliff which means they've lost a huge chunk of their income. Turns out it's leading to big changes for Aussie students and now one uni is making an even bigger move. Swinburne Uni in Melbourne is actually going to dump the ranking system, allowing people to enter without getting a good score. To enable people, rather than binging on Netflix, to be able to binge on studying. So that's Dan Tien, the Education Minister, um, that seems like a, a really big move to change the whole university entrance system there at Swinburne. Yeah, they're going to let Year 12s into some courses without the ATAR score that they would have gotten. Look, this is, of course, to make up for the shortfall in international students, but also Year 12s locally have had a really hard year, and I guess we've got to show a little bit of compassion to them. Yeah, well, it might take the pressure off some of those students who are going to have the most stressful year of their lives anyway being in, in Year 12, but add COVID to the mix, and it would have been a real nightmare. 
Nightclubs are going to be one of the last venues to open post-lockdown, but one nightclub in Melbourne didn't seem to care about those rules. Yeah, the Love Machine nightclub in Paran um, jumped the gun and opened early and now it's facing a fine. Um, police raided the venue on Saturday night saying they'd found up to 50 people partying inside. Busted there. Annika, I'd actually heard of a few venues having these sort of illegal lock-ins, but I've also heard of venues who are now adapting really well to the sort of um, sit-down nightclub environment. People, I guess, kind of dancing in their seats. <laughs> Look, I did another one for the Year 12s. I feel for these kids that are uh, leaving school or at uni and, you know, you just want to club and go out and they won't be able to do that. All right. In a moment, we're going to talk the housing market. Is this the chance of a generation for young people to get in? All right, it's time to brief you on buying a house. Will the pandemic produce the opportunity of a generation for young people who are desperate to crack the housing market? I want more Australians to be able to realise the dream of owning their own home. Do you think you'll ever get into the property market? I don't think so. We've been saving a deposit for a long time and it's really hard to get it all together. The starting point for a first-home buyer is to get a good job that pays good money. I'm working seven days a week and we're still not managing to save enough. It's hard to save for a deposit. We want to help make the dreams of first home buyers a reality. So as you can hear there, decades of surging house prices have created some intense intergenerational arguments around fairness. Even the old smashed avo got caught in the crossfire for a moment there a few years ago. And Annika, this one's really close to home for you, pardon the pun. Yeah, look, we were desperate to buy a house this year. You know, 2020 was going to be the year we bought a house. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. So just before things got really bad, we actually bid on a house and thankfully didn't win at that auction because, you know, we would have probably bought at the absolute top of the market. But, of course, that now turns into... When do we buy now? There's been some huge predictions that, uh, you know, properties will drop by up to 30%. Yeah. And it's like, do you get in now or do you hang out? So it's really just about continuing to look at the market, but there's not a lot of stock out there. So that's another sort of hurdle, I guess, first home buyers are facing. This is quite stressful, isn't it? Because you're worried that it'll just keep booming the way it did for our parents. And, and houses have already become so much less affordable for people of our generation. Yeah, it's a fight that happens in my household and I'm sure many households around Australia that is it harder for people of our generation? Look, to me, yes, it is. And I think the stats suggest that. Uh, one stat I often rely on is that median home prices have actually increased from four times the average income in the early 90s to around seven times today. And that's actually eight times if you consider Sydney. Now, of course, people in other generations did have it hard. Interest rates were really, really high in the 1980s. So I guess every generation faces their own battles. But with rents being really high, at least up until the pandemic, it's been quite hard to save that deposit and get into the market, especially when there's so many boomer investors who have had great incentives to compete against. Yeah. So as you mentioned before, um, it was looking like this would be a really interesting time for the property market, the pandemic, um, the Commonwealth Bank forecasting up to a 30% decline, but the pandemic hasn't been as bad as we thought. Most banks have scaled back their predicted drops to around 
10%. And the data is showing that they haven't fallen much at all yet. In May, there was a 0.4% drop in national house prices. Yeah, I guess those things take a little bit of time to filter through. So we will start to see some, I guess, more active data. And as I've said before, there's not a lot of properties on the market. The September cliff will be something to watch, though. Mortgage freezes end, the JobKeeper payment stops. And some people expect that this will lead to really stressed mortgagees being forced to sell their houses. Let's get into all these big questions, find out whether the time is right for you with Nerida Connorsby. She's the chief economist at realestate.com.au. Um, Nerida, a lot of people have been watching thinking this could be their moment. Do you think this is the right time for first home buyers to jump into the market? Look, we can, we can certainly see that a lot of first home buyers are wanting to make the move. When we have a look at inquiry levels on, on realestate.com.au, there has been a massive surge in activity and uh, more so in some locations than others. Um, Canberra in particular is, is seeing tonnes of activity, um, but even places like Sydney and Melbourne, we, we have seen a doubling compared to the same time last year. Uh, it's surprising. You know, we are in the middle of a, a pandemic. Uh, we've got rising unemployment. There's a lot of uncertainty around around the outlook. Uh, but at the same time, there is tonnes and tonnes of incentives around for first home buyers. And uh, most recently, the home builder package is also an additional amount of money that the government is offering, uh, not just to first home buyers, but obviously first home buyers are eligible for it. Can you explain that and also whether you think it will actually entice people to hire tradies? Yeah, sure. So the home builder scheme is a $25,000 um, cash incentive to, to either renovate a home or to um, alternatively build a new home. Uh, in terms of first home buyers, um, you know, again, um, looking at what we're, we're seeing for, for new home builders, there's, there's been tonnes and tonnes of activity. So um, it is leading to a greater activity in terms of, um, of, of new, new builds. Uh, and then in, for renovators, it is likely to also uh, be, be a factor. I, I think if you are someone who is wanting to take advantage of the scheme, uh, the first thing is to get in quickly because it is a, it is a short-term scheme. It's only uh, going to be taking place over the next six months. I was one of the people that wanted to jump into the housing market this year before COVID came along, got a deposit ready to go. And now the question is, when do we jump in? Look, I think on one hand, if you're in an industry where you're very uncertain about your job, I think, you know, that personally, if I was in that situation, I, I would feel quite nervous taking on a big mortgage when, um, you know, when my employment situation was a little bit uncertain. Uh, I also think it has a lot to do with how long you're wanting to hold on. If you are a first home buyer, you know, and you're reasonably confident that you will, you know, stay employed and you can pay off a mortgage uh, and you are wanting to buy somewhere where you'll potentially hold for three, four, five years or even even longer, I think now is a not a bad time to be looking around. And um, I think the thing too, I think you do need to see, uh, think of with property is that on one hand, uh, it's, you know, there, there could be price falls and, um, you know, there could be more distress in the market. But at the same time, what we, we do find that no matter where you buy in the cycle, that as long as you hold on to the property for a prolonged period of time, you are more likely to, to come out in, in a far better position when you go to sell. So some of those predictions were dire. Uh, the CBA put out a worst case scenario of 30% drop. Um, are we seeing any signs of that yet? And do you think this so-called September cliff will really be a reality? 
Look, at 30%, I mean, it's, it's such an extreme drop. And um, it's not to say that in some locations it, it couldn't happen. I mean, we, we I mean, I, I can't actually think of a location we have seen a 30% drop in, certainly in, in you know, the last 20 years. But uh, we have seen places where there's been too many apartments developed and, um, you know, there's very low levels of demand and, you know, those sorts of locations can see drops. Uh, I think, though, if you were looking to buy a, a, a house in an established area that's got really good amenity and, you know, by amenity, you know, I mean things like good public transport and good shopping precinct and good schools, you know, I think something like that will, will generally hold value quite well. So uh, I think it, you know, it partly depends on on what type of property you're looking to buy, but and but also definitely depends on, on the location that you're looking at as well. A 30% drop might be dire to some. It would be a blessing to me. But <laughs> yes. <laughs> In terms of where you touched on it there, where you might want to buy, um, there has been recent reports about an overstock of inner city apartments and things like this. So if you're looking to, say, buy a house now, what would your advice be? You said keeping it for a long time is essential, but what sort of property, uh, I guess, doesn't lose its value and could you pick up a bargain on here? Yeah, look, I think I think the thing is to always look at um, amenity. I mean, I mentioned before, you know, if you if you have a look long term at the places that do seem to hold value the best, they they are those that do offer something a little bit better in terms of you know a better retail precinct or very good public transport. You know, those sorts of things really seem to hold true. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be close to the city. Um, beyond that, it does depend on on what sort of um, life you want to live, I guess. You know, do are you someone that really wants to be in the centre of the action, uh, in in a premium suburb, um, but you're a first home buyer, then then probably an apartment is going to be what you can afford. Uh, if you want that space and you and you know you want a, a you know a house and you want a bit of land, then then realistically as a first home buyer, you're not going to be able to to find that in a premium suburb and you will have to move further out. Uh, the other thing, though, is that what we do find too is that long term, many of the areas that first home buyers uh, target do tend to do quite well. Footscray in Melbourne, for example, or Northcote in Melbourne, and Sydney, probably somewhere like Newtown. Ten years ago, those areas were, were very, very cheap. But then what happened was that we did see a lot of first home buyer activity in those areas. And so what happened is that the first home buyers came in. We started to see this recycling of stock from very, very old people owning the homes to very young people. They renovated and the like. And, and we did start to see this quite um, significant urban regeneration take place. So I think that's another thing to consider that, even if you're buying in a suburb that, you know, isn't quite the, the premium or, or the best suburb that you, you want to be in, if there's a lot of young people and a lot of energy in that suburb, it can significantly pull up values. The hipsters move in, it becomes cool, prices go up, cool cafes, bars, we all know the story. The federal government have obviously tried to get people into homes and now get people renovating them. One of the schemes they have is the first home loan deposit scheme and there's going to be about 10,000 places come up for grabs in that from July. Can you explain how that works for our listeners? If you had a deposit of less than 20%, uh, you did need to pay mortgage insurance. And what the first home buyer scheme does is allow you to take out uh, a mortgage with just 5% deposit but not have to pay the mortgage insurance. For many 
uh, first home buyers, the biggest challenge is getting that deposit together. And so um, it does allow them to get a smaller deposit and get into the market quicker than they otherwise would. And so do you think that scheme's working? I, I guess one of the main critiques of it is that only you know several thousand or, or 10,000 more will be able to actually access it. Look, it, it has been extraordinarily popular. I mean, I spoke before about what we've seen in, in terms of inquiry levels and um, and we saw a huge jump. Basically, when that scheme was introduced in January, we did see a big jump in inquiry levels. So I think it partly is that 5% deposit scheme. You know, there's, there's, there's also all those incentives that are available to people. Um, but probably also a big one, which I, I haven't really touched on, is, is the fact that we, we're not really seeing much investor activity at the moment. And investors and first home buyers are two groups that don't work well together. You know, when we've, when we've got lots and lots of investors in the market, we, we do see a significant drawback in first home buyer activity. Uh, right now, we, we don't have much investor activity and, and we've got tons and tons of first home buyers. So, you know, I think that's also been a, a factor in, in allowing a lot of first home buyers to get into the market, that they're not competing for against investors when, when they go to buy. And, um, and we know that first home buyers and investors do tend to, to focus on similar similar property types. Well, Narado, hearing a bit of cautious optimism here for first home buyers. Um, obviously, you want to hold the property for a while, but there's plenty of good signals, as you've mentioned. Um, investors moving out of the market, record low interest rates, and prices have stopped surging for a moment, which is great. Thank you so much for joining us on the briefing and, and giving us your analysis. Thanks for having me. That was Nerida Connorsby, Chief Economist from realestate.com.au. Yeah, interesting advice there, Tom, about getting into the market. The key seems to be just do it as soon as you can, especially if you're not going to sell soon, if you're going to hold on to the property. Most people that hold on to properties over a long time tend to make money anyway. Yeah, it's good investment advice for any asset class that it's so hard to pick the exact right moment. The better thing is just to to do it and stay in for a long time. All right, that's it for today. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we've heard the calls in the US to defund the police. We're going to find out what that actually means. A Podcast One production.